you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> As we look at the third verse of this, this passage that I've been looking at over the last three weeks, <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll read from verse 7 to 9. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Let's uh, pray before we go into this message. Father, we thank you once again for your word and we thank you that you've preserved it for us, that we can read, look into it now and learn of your truth and your ways. Father, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that you would direct my words, my thoughts, and that our hearts would all be open to receive that truth, that we might grow thereby into the image of our Lord and our Saviour. Lord, challenge us this morning. Lord, to live more for you, to give ourselves wholly to you. Indeed, you indeed deserve all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We've looked at verse 7 and verse 8 already uh, the last uh, two weeks. <clears throat> and uh, Alan gave a wonderful message. I think it was last week, wasn't it? Yeah. Thank you again for that. But just a, a quick recap on those, uh, those first two verses, verse 7 and verse 8. We found, uh, we discovered a few things regarding those verses. The first in verse 7 that we found was that being a real Christian is not an easy road. Being a real Christian in today's world, in any time, is not an easy road to be on. Living your faith makes you a target of the enemy. Would you agree with me? But despite the tremendous pressure and opposition we may face as Christians, despite the trials and tribulations we may go through during our walk with the Lord, there is absolutely no reason for a Christian to fear. The world cannot take away that which is the most precious thing which we have. And if you recall, during the the, uh, communion time, the, precious, the most precious thing we have is not our lives. Most people would say that our life is the most precious thing to us. Well, Paul clearly said that his life wasn't the most precious thing to him. He was more than happy to give it up. So what is the most precious thing? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 35, as we find out what it is that is most precious to us in the midst of trials and tribulations. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The most precious thing that you and I possess 
the thing that gives us meaning in our lives. This morning and indeed every day, the thing that gives us worth and purpose in life, the thing that will never let us down regardless of our circumstances is the love of our Saviour for us. That's the most precious thing that we have, the love of Jesus Christ. If you have the love of Jesus this morning, you have everything. You have everything because nothing else compares to that. This is the one thing. This relationship with him is the one thing worth selling everything. One thing worth giving up everything else for and focusing on in your life. So the first thing, the first point that we learned that God given us hasn't given us a spirit of fear but of love and of power and a sound mind. And that love causes us to be more than conquerors. That love helps us to conquer any fear that we have. Any fear of losing whatever it may be that we have in this world does pales into insignificance when we compare it to the love that Jesus has for us. We also discovered that when a person puts their faith in Christ and is saved, they receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit transforms a person from being a fearful individual into one with power, love and a sound mind. Why? Once again, because a person finds true love. You know, that phrase, true love, is often thrown around very loosely in our society. When I, when I say the phrase, true love, most people think of a man and a woman finding their true love. That's not true love. True love, real love, is the love that God has for us. The love that was shown to us. Every other love that we have in this world, whether it's love between brethren, love between a husband and a wife, love for parents and children, love in any other degree, is only a very faint shadow of the love that God has for us. Everything else is tainted. Every other type of love that we experience between each other it's only a reflection of that love that we experience the cross. But when a person finds true love, when a person experiences the love of God in Jesus Christ, they find true freedom. They find the power to conquer all fears. When a person discovers the love of God and accepts that love for themselves, they have now found a genuine reason to live. One of the biggest problems in our society, indeed in every culture in the world, is that people have no reason to live. They may find reasons to live which are temporal. They may find things which satisfy them. Some people live for their family. Some people live for their career. Some people live for money. Some people live for other relationships. Some people live for their hobbies. But when a person discovers the love of God, they've found the genuine reason to live. A hope beyond this world. A peace beyond understanding. With God, the Holy Spirit living inside a person, with the power of God working inside of us, conforming us to his character, we have a genuine reason to live. Romans 15.13 says, Now the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. We have a hope the world does not have. We have a destiny the world cannot understand. We have experienced and tasted a love the world cannot appreciate when we talk to them about it. The third thing we discovered is that despite the persecution and ridicule of this world, sometimes we feel ridiculed about what we believe. The world does a wonderful job of making Christians feel that big. Because apparently what we believe is nonsense. But despite that, despite the world's raging against God's word, we have absolutely no reason to be ashamed of God's truth. No reason to be ashamed. This truth is what the world needs to hear. And we know it because we were changed by it. So we have a responsibility to share that truth, to live that truth, to lift that truth up and to defend that truth, both in here and out there. And if it means us being ridiculed, so be it. Happy to be ridiculed. Happy to be called a fool. Happy to be called an idiot for this truth. Because this truth didn't come from man. This truth came from God. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And now we come to the third verse in this particular passage. Verse 9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now that's a verse. <laughs> There's about five sermons in there. But we're going to try and do that one verse today and talk about these specific things. And we'll start off with, uh, with this first one. Who hath saved us? Who has saved us? Question. Who? God has saved us. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we needed saving. It means that we weren't in a state to save ourselves. It means that we had no power in and of ourselves to actually rescue ourselves from where we were. We were not only drowning in a sea of sin, but we were so far from the shore that we were, regardless of what we would have tried, we would have died. And the death we would have died was an eternal death. So how much saving did we do? What part did we have to play? What percentage did you and I actually contribute to our salvation? Well, the answer is very simple. And the answer is zero. We did not contribute. We didn't add to. We can't add to anymore the work that Jesus did on the cross. Makes you feel a bit weak, doesn't it? It was all done by him. So we had no power to save ourselves. That's why God the Father had to send God the Son to come and do that job. 
And in Luke chapter 9, verse 56, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Our salvation is entirely, completely holy of God. It springs entirely of Him. It's His love. It was His mercy. It's His grace. It's His elective purpose and reason to save us. Salvation is of God. The Bible says, if it weren't for the mercy of God, no flesh would be saved in His sight. Salvation is only of God and no one else. No one else helped Him. No one else um, uh, gave Him the idea. It came solely from Him. That's why I don't count myself as a Catholic today. Those of you who, who know a little bit about Catholicism will understand very quickly that Catholics like to add to that salvation that God achieved for man. See, I found out that it wasn't the church, the mother church that saved me. It wasn't the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops and the archbishops and all the other uh, group of people that got together that were responsible somehow for my salvation. It wasn't because I was a member of that church that saved me. It wasn't the saints that saved me. Even though some of them may have been godly people, it wasn't because of their prayers, it wasn't because of their, of their actions that I was saved, that I find myself saved today. It wasn't Mary, as godly a woman as she was, she needed saving as well. She's not there at the moment, saving me. She's not a co-mediatrix with the Lord, because there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus. So Mary can't save me. The sacraments can't save me. Regardless of, of beside the fact that I've been baptised, I've had communion, I've had um, uh, confirmation, I've been to confession, none of those things saved me. Nor could they add to being saved. Nor could they get me saved. It wasn't my obedience that saved me. It wasn't the fact that I, I go to church on a Sunday or do the things that for example, like uh, having to fast during Lent, that saved me. No, none of those things could save me. The reason I found life, I realised later, was because of one. Jesus. He's the only one who could save me. That's why he is the saviour of all men. He is the only begotten son of God. He is the only way, truth, the life... There is everything found in him that a person needs to find true life. Think about this for a moment. Can a, can a dead man save himself? Can, a, can someone who is physically dead do anything to help themselves? The answer is no. Once dead and buried, is there any hope for a person? No. Yet, it was the voice of Jesus that called a dead man from his grave and gave him life. A man called Lazarus in the Bible. He was dead, buried, wrapped up, spiced up, all perfumed and rotting in a cave. And the Son of God calls him out. 
What did Lazarus do for that life? Absolutely nothing. Because when he heard the voice of Christ, he couldn't help himself but to get up. It was the voice of Almighty God that spoke and rose a dead Lazarus. It is the voice of Almighty God and Jesus himself that will one day speak to every individual who's dead in the, on this earth, who has died from the beginning till now, the Bible says. He will one day speak again and everyone who has died in the history of this planet will wake up and will stand again on their feet. People that have vanished in the depths of the sea, who have been eaten by the fish, people who have been mixed up with the dust of the earth, people who have been burned alive and their ashes flown away into the wind, are going to wake up and walk again. They will wake from their sleep. John chapter 5 verse 28 says, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. One day every person who has ever lived shall rise again. Millions and millions, billions upon billions will hear Jesus calling them. And they will stand on their feet again. And they will face their maker and their judge. It's only the power of God that can achieve this. It's only God who has that capacity to do that. By his spoken word, God created the entire universe and everything in it. And by that voice, he will call men from the dust of the earth. For us who were saved... It was the voice of God that called us to this salvation we have. We were dead, the Bible says, in trespasses and sins. And we heard the voice of God calling us. We were brought to life. We came out of a grave, as it were. Dead, with no hope, no future, no chance to save ourselves. We heard God's voice and that's why we're here today. By the power of God, we will give a new life in Jesus Christ. Life, that the Bible says, was already reckoned in him before God made anything. Do you find that amazing? I find that absolutely extraordinary. That before God even made one thing, we were already in Jesus. The Bible says he has called us with a holy calling. The word holy means simply to be set apart. God himself is set apart from his whole creation. He is different, unique from everything else that he has made. God is himself set apart and he desires his people, his children, to be set apart as well. God who is himself holy has always desired his people to be holy. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 for me.
First Peter chapter 1 verse 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. That means in everything you do in your life. Because it is written, Be, be ye holy, for I am holy. We have been set apart by God. We have been called by him, but not just called to do nothing. We have been called to be holy. Holiness is not an option for us. It's not an option. We can't say, oh, I, look, I might give the holiness part a, uh, a bit of a miss now. It's not an option. It's who we are meant to be. It comes part and parcel with being saved. It comes part of the package of being adopted into God's family. Because if God is holy, he wants his children to be holy as well. It's a family obligation for everyone who is joined with Christ. Now what did we do to deserve this salvation? The Bible says we did nothing. Because it says not according to our works. Your works are everything in your mind whether good or bad, that you think have any merit. Nothing we ever did earns favour to salvation. And I'll put it to you plainly. There was nothing special about me. There was nothing that made me more acceptable to God above anyone else. There was nothing that I ever did or said or thought that changed God's mind about me. You see, any good that I ever did, even if I had added everything that I thought was good in my life from the time that I was born till today, if I, if I placed all of them together, don't amount to anything before God. If I added them all together, the Bible says that only amount to some filthy rags before God. Something only useful to be thrown away. If I tried to earn God's favour or my salvation by the good things that I did, it would be like trying to buy gold from the mint by bringing my rubbish bins there as an exchange. That's how good my, my works were before God. Yet the Bible says, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Did any of us earn those qualifications anywhere along the way? No. God called us to those things. None of us deserved any of those things. None of us did anything to merit those things. And even now, we don't do anything to merit anything. And why did he call us? Why did he decide to save us? Why did he choose us before the foundation of the world? Well, it says, very simply, it was according to his own purpose and grace. It's his purpose, not mine. It wasn't because I was better than anyone else, not because of some inherent worth in me, not because of my good works. Well, if it wasn't of those things, then why? Did God call me? Why 
Why should God have so loved ungodly sinners that he was willing to send his only son to die for them? Why should he go to such a cost to save them from hell and to bring them to heaven so that they could spend an eternity with him? The only answer, the only answer that he gives us is that it's his purpose. It's his choice. It's his will. The reason for his action doesn't lie with me. It doesn't lie in any of us. Rather, it lies in his own heart of love. He loved us, not because we were lovable, in any sense of the word. He loved us because he simply chose to love us. And he chose to bestow his grace on us. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favour. Grace is also God's supernatural enabling for salvation and daily sanctification. You see, grace didn't stop at the cross. Amazing grace, yes it was, that saved us from hell and gave us eternity. But God's grace is given to us each and every day. Grace never stopped flowing from God's throne. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Like that? Grace is everything for nothing in exchange for those who don't deserve anything, which is us. And this is the difference between these ones. Justice is getting what you deserve, correct? God could have been just. God could have thrown every person into hell for rebelling against him. That's justice. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. God showed us mercy because he didn't throw us into hell. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is how God saved us. Grace is that thing by which God now sustains us. Grace is that which will ensure that we remain saved till the day that Jesus comes and takes us home. If it's not for the grace of God, we would not stay saved. Because if, we, if, it, if it had to rely on our own effort to continue this, this walk, we would fail after the first 10 minutes. It's only by the grace of God that we stay saved. Do you think this morning that you are any more worthy to be saved than before you were saved? Do you think you're more worthy today? Is there any good found in ourselves that wasn't there before? No. The only good in us today is Him. The only goodness that we have is His imputed righteousness to us. The only worth we have today is because He ascribes us that worth. We are justified and sanctified because of what He has done and what He is continuing to do. But that, that causes you to ask questions. That causes me to ask questions. Why us and not some others? I ask those questions all the time. Why was the gospel preached in my family when I was 10 years old? Why was it that I had a cousin 
who had liver cancer and her father got saved because of that and then for 10 years he preached to me and then after 10 years I accepted the Lord. Why did I get that but my next door neighbour didn't? Why did they never hear the gospel the way I heard it? Why did they never get to hear hymns and choruses sung? I don't know. Why does a family only one block away or two never heard of the name of Jesus Christ? The way I've heard it. You see, I've had plenty of opportunities. I was given opportunities for years and years. Continuing to hear the gospel, not just from one place, but from multiple places. Why, why was I afforded more than someone who lives in the middle of Africa who doesn't hear the gospel? Did they ever bother you those questions? Is God's arm too short to reach them? I mean, He reached my house, but what? How come next door? To the people that were that were living next to us, they didn't get to hear it. Well, not as much as I, we heard it. Is God's arm too short? I don't think so. The simple truth is we don't know why. We don't know. Why did why do some people hear the gospel for years and some only for a brief moment? I don't know. Why was I called to be a pastor and not someone else? Why was Don called to be a deacon? Why, why are any of us called to be anything and not someone else? The Bible simply, the Bible doesn't give us those answers. The Bible simply says that God chose to save us according to his own purposes. To ask why is almost a futile exercise. For we can easily ask the questions of the Old Testament saints. Turn to Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Genesis 12 verse 1 and 2 says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. Can I ask you a question? Why did he choose Abraham? Why not someone else? Was, can I ask you a question? Was Abraham more worthy than everyone else that lived in his, uh, his, his country or the next country? Was he more worthy? Did he do more works before God that made him the right choice? The Bible says that, none of, that God doesn't choose according to works. God simply said to Abraham, I want you to get out of your country and I'm going to bless you. He chose Abraham. Because of Abraham? No, because of God. Why did he choose Noah to save out of all the people in the world? 
I think the simple, the simple answer is, oh, because Noah was righteous and no one else was righteous. But the Bible simply says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Whose grace? Did Noah have his own grace? No. Was Noah righteous, so righteous before God that he was perfect? The Bible says he was perfect in his generations, but I'm not sure if that means he was a perfect individual. Because if he was perfect, then he wouldn't need salvation. And we know that's not true. The Bible simply says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why did God choose Israel? He chose Israel. And not an, why didn't he choose another nation? Why didn't he call other nations as well as Israel? Why didn't he choose the Persians, the Chaldeans? Why didn't he call the Chaldeans and say, I want you to be my people and I'm going to give you my laws and I'm going to show you my ways? Was Israel better than all the nations around them? No. Back then they were smaller than everyone else. And they were a continual pain. They weren't better. Read the Bible. If you say that Israel is better than the other nations around them, then you haven't read much of your Bible. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 5 says, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day when I chose Israel, and lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob, and made myself known unto them. He made himself known to them. They didn't go looking for him. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 14 says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. And earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. And he chose their seed after them, even you above all people as it is this day. Why did God choose Israel? I don't know. But he chose it according to his own purposes. Why did Jesus, Jesus choose the twelve disciples? You ever wondered that? Jesus chose every one of his disciples. Did they choose him? No. Because he says in John chapter 6 verse 70, Jesus answered them and said, Have not I chosen you twelve and one is a devil? He chose every one of them. Why those twelve? Who are now the foundations of the, of the church? Why not another twelve? Why was Paul chosen to be an apostle? Paul was a murderer of Christians. When did God choose Paul? On his way to Damascus to kill a few more. Why did Paul get the opportunity to have Jesus personally visit him? I don't know. In Acts chapter 9 verse 15, it says, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. We don't have any answers to these questions for the moment. We know it wasn't because any of these people were better than everyone else. Why are we sitting here today and other people aren't? It's not because any of us are better than anyone else. And this is the, this is the, the verse that really makes you wonder. It says, which... 
was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. What was given to us in Christ Jesus? Grace. Grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. To reinforce the idea that we were chosen before we ever did anything to merit God's favour, the scripture says here that God bestowed his grace upon us before he created anything. Just like a loving couple who has a baby on the way, prepare everything. Prepare the room and everything for the coming child. God did it for us. Now I want you to notice the tenses of all these words. Saved, called, given. Past, present or future. All in the past. From the moment the person has been saved or we, we experienced salvation, it was all done. Everything is in the past. Past, perfect, done, complete. We are perfectly saved. Wholly saved, completely saved in the purposes of God. In no way, in no account are we we people who are on their way to salvation. We aren't working our way to getting saved. We are saved full stop. In the purposes of God, in his love and mercy, we are already saved. In God's mind, we were already saved before he made anything and it's a blessing that God has bestowed upon us now this eternal life every person who has put their faith in Christ is now completely saved the work of Christ is finished that person has been saved called and given the grace necessary to rescue them from an an eternal state of separation from God to an eternal state of union with God. Turn to Romans chapter 8 with me for a moment. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Can I understand that? No. I can't fathom that. I can't fathom that before he created anything that was already in place. In the midst of all this absolute sovereignty that God has over his creation. Now, sovereignty means he can do whatever he likes with it. He could have wiped out mankind completely. Did he have to save Noah? No. He could have destroyed the whole world, the whole universe, angels and everything. And he would have been totally justified to do it. Because he made them. He created them for himself, for his own purpose. Yet he chose not to. 
in the midst of this complete sovereignty and freedom that God has over his creation, is this incredible ability to rescue the ones called according to his purpose before the foundation of the world. In the concrete ability that he possesses to ensure that a person called, foreknown, predestined, conformed, justified, glorified, he has that incredible power to do that. And in the middle of all that, it sits this interesting little word that has the biggest impact on me personally. He foreknew me. Can I understand all the other stuff that's going on? No, because I live in, 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 a, in this world. I live now. I make choices. I do things. I have a free will. I don't doubt I have a free will. How does that fit with, with God's eternal plans and choosing everything? I don't know. If I told you I know, I'd be lying to you. Does anyone know? Not really. They can try and make all logical types of inferences and, and try to connect the dots, but we don't know. Is it, are we crazy for believing God's sovereignty and free will? I don't think so. Do you think that's any less um, uh, uh, logical or rational than scientists, what, the, what scientists believe? You might say, well, it might seem to be less, less rational. It's not. Having studied science at university, I know there are plenty of things that scientists take by faith. Only because when they write it down on a piece of paper, it adds up a certain way. And I'll tell you what I mean. <clears throat> what is light? Who knows what light is? Please put up your hand. Who knows completely what light is? Not really. Now, is light, can I ask you a question, is light a, a particle? We know the thing called photons that make up light. Are they particle or is light something else? It's, it's a wave as well. A wave? Yes, like a wave in the ocean. Something that goes along like this. Now, something that goes along like that, right, is not a particle going along like that. It simply exists like that in that shape. It exists like that. Now, a particle exists in a point in space. Yet, light is both. At the same time. How? Scientists don't know. Anyone know what the spin of an atom is? This is a, one that will absolutely floor you. <clears throat> Do you know how the planets spin and then they go around the sun? All right? So they're spinning on their own axis, like the Earth. That's why we have 24-hour days. And then the reason we have a year is because the Earth goes around the sun once in a year. Okay? Ends up back in the same place. You know atoms... You know the little electrons that spin around the atom? They spin too. Just like little planets, they spin around. But you know something? Electrons that spin around the atoms have what's called a half spin. You might say, all right, half spin. What's a half spin? Uh, get this. This is what the mathematics of the scientists actually tell them. That atoms, that, sorry, electrons spin around twice before they come back to the same place. Can you understand that? So normally if something spins around, it comes back to the same place after one time it goes around. Atoms spin around twice before they get around to the same place. How does that work? Is that logical? Is that understandable in our thing? No. It makes absolutely no sense. It spins around twice before it comes back to the same place. It's weird. There are so many things of that nature... Right? 
That scientists simply take by faith because their mathematics tells them it's like that. They live by faith, not having seen it with their own eyes, but trusting whatever experiments they do. Are we crazy because we can believe in the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? No. Do I have to fully understand it? No. Because I trust God's character. But this is the thing that gets me. God foreknew me. God knew me. He knew me. Before he created all things, before he flung the stars into space and created the foundations of the world, before he set in motion the amazing laws of this universe, the laws of gravity, electricity, of atoms and molecules and planets and galaxies, before the angels were created and the heaven was established, before Lucifer fell, before billions of people were born on this planet, before there existed anything, he knew me. Think about that. He knew me already. He knew my name. He knew how I would be born. He knew how I would grow, which paths I would take, what dreams I would follow. He knows and he knew my strengths, my weaknesses, my hurts, my joys. He already knew me when there was nothing else around except for him. He knew me. And he thought of me. You think about that. He thought of you. Before he made anything. He thought of me. And he thought to save me. He thought to call me. He thought to bestow his grace to me. That amazes me. That humbles me. That wants me want to bow my knee to him. Why did I deserve it? I didn't. He chose to think of me. And it amazed Paul as well. Because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. It was God's pleasure to save me, to adopt me through Jesus. It was his pleasure to send his son to die for me. Now he wants me to walk with him holy and without blame. Can I resist? How can I say no to that? How can I say no when in eternity past he thought of me? When I've been on his mind ever since. Can I resist that? Yeah, some people can resist. Some people can forget it. Can I forget that love that reached to me before time began? He knew me and his desire was that I would know him. That's his desire. That's God's desire for every person. That they would know him. 
Turn with me to John chapter 17 for a moment. John chapter 17 verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. This is life eternal, that we know him, that we know Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. Now the questions I'm going to ask you now are the most important questions you need to answer to yourself. Do you know him today? He might know you, but do you know him? Have you understood what love he's had for you before he created all things? And more importantly, have you experienced that love? Have you experienced the love that Jesus Christ has for you? Do you know him? Have you ever met him? This is a question that only you can answer this morning. I can't answer it for you. Only you can answer it. No one else knows your heart. God knows your heart, but you know where you stand. I believe that each and every one of us knows the answer this morning, whether we know Jesus Christ. You may be playing church this morning. Maybe you've been playing church a very long time. Maybe you've become so comfortable playing church that it's just a routine for you now. Church has become a, uh, something that, you, that makes you feel good about yourself. You get a chance to catch up with people who are very nice. Makes you feel good being part of something that seems to be right. Does it take away the sense of shame a bit? Does it make you feel a little bit more acceptable to him this morning if you do the right things? But the real question you might have gnawing at your soul this morning is, I don't know him. I don't think I know him. I don't have a relationship with him. I might know him as an historical figure. I might know him in my head, but I don't know his love in my heart. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I, have, I am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know I the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. Have you heard the voice of Jesus calling to your heart? Have you put your trust in that love? In that voice? Are you willing to forsake all for him? To love him more than all the world offers you? 
He laid down his life completely for you to show his love and commitment to you. He went to the cross for you. He can lead you home. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there something more valuable to you this morning than him? Is there anything more valuable to you this morning than him? You may have a few things that are popping up in your mind right now. And if you think hard enough of that thing, and if there's one thing that's that's continuing to keep you away from him, to making him your Lord and your Saviour, how long will you let it keep you away? How long will you let that stumbling block slowly destroy your life? If today the Lord is calling you, if he's calling your heart, can you risk saying no to his voice one more time? How do you know it won't be the last time? Take a risk. Say yes. Answer his voice. If you don't know what to pray, I'm sure there are plenty here who would be happy to pray with you. Do you have to pray at the front and declare it like this? No. You can pray in a a small room together. Are you embarrassed? Is embarrassment stopping you from praying? And allowing Jesus to save you? You're going to let embarrassment actually destroy your life? Call him today. Ask him to save you, to cleanse you of your sin, to lead you into his paths. Thank him for going to the cross for you, for shedding his blood for you. Tell him you'll follow him to the ends of the earth. Do that. And don't wait. There is nothing more valuable a person can have than Jesus in their life. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Christian. Ones who are sure that you answered that voice. When was the last time you heard it? Have you heard it? Have you heard his voice in your heart telling you to do things? When was the last time you you listened out for him? When was the last time you actually answered, Yes, Lord, okay, I'll do what you want me to do. Where are you serving him at the moment? What does your church family actually mean to you today? Have you forgotten the love that he showed you and the patience that he has for you? Are you showing that same love for the ones in the same family that you belong to? What are you doing to serve him today? Do you know what it even means to serve him? Or have you strayed so far from the flock for so long that you can't recognise his voice anymore amidst all the yelling in this world? If that's the case, then you need to change the direction and change it immediately. The beautiful thing about our Lord is that he's always been following. You see, when you stray, the Lord doesn't let you go. 
he's been following you. And all you need to do is stop and turn around. Because regardless of how far you've gone, he's right there behind you waiting for you to simply turn around so he can carry you back to the flock. But once you're back at the flock, follow him. Look to him. Don't be distracted by all the other wandering sheep that have gone in different directions. Don't be distracted and dismayed by wolves and sheep's clothing and use them as an excuse to say, I'm not going to look at him anymore. I'm going to look at these people who are affecting me. Too many Christians do that. Too many Christians stop following Jesus Christ because they're busy looking at everyone else around them. You need to be a bit more like Paul, ready to go by himself into the den of lions in Jerusalem and say, hey, if they kill me, I've got something more precious in my life. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Do you know him today? I'll leave you with that question. God bless you.